Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Drawdown, as I see it, is you know kind of that marker on the horizon, pointing us towards a future that we actually want, a future where reversing global warming is possible. And we need to we need to set what that marker is. We need to set that goal that is going to actually inspire people to take action and to move towards that. Now, the pathways towards that goal, towards that marker on the horizon may change, they may weave, they may move, they may there may be different types of solutions that are relevant to different places and different contexts, but it's all leading towards that future we actually want. And so what we try to do at Drawdown is actually name that marker on the horizon and to show people some multiple pathways that when taken together can achieve that. I'm very pleased to welcome Chad Frischman to the podcast. Chad is the lead researcher and principal architect of the methodology and models behind Project Drawdown. In collaboration with leading environmentalist Paul Hawken and a global team of researchers, Chad helped design the complex models underlying Drawdown. As head of research since Project Drawdown's inception, Chad is a key spokesperson dedicated to sharing the message and model of Drawdown with the world. So thank you very much, Chad, for taking the time today to join me on the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Thank you, Fergal. It's a pleasure to be here. And let me just say, um, we're so pleased by uh, the work that you're doing with the Drawdown Agenda. It's been so wonderful to see so many brilliant researchers and advisors to our project take part in this wonderful podcast. Yeah, it's gone very well. It's been uh, very exciting. It's great to translate it into another medium, to have people talk, a dialogue, and to have you know, access to people who've been working so closely on these, on this research, on this uh, the fundamental uh, reorientation or thinking about things in such a different way and uh, covering the, so many different areas. So that's been great. And it's great to have an opportunity to talk to you also because you were and are such a, a key player in the whole drawdown project uh, in the initiative and how it's developed. I mean, a good place maybe just to start, if you could talk a little bit about your background and how you actually got involved in Project Drawdown. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Virgil. So, yeah, I got involved with Project Drawdown from the very early inception back in 2014 with uh, Paul Hawken and Amanda Ravenhill. Um, and myself, we got together for, to, to create this project. Um, but what really what I was doing prior to that was I spent about 10 years or thereabouts working in this nexus between indigenous people's rights and well-being, uh, environmental conservation and sustainable development. Uh, you might say uh, people, planet, and prosperity, that nexus between really addressing some of the great challenges that are faced by, you know, indigenous peoples across the planet, um, and trying to alleviate poverty and, and improve well-being while also considering indigenous peoples' own perspectives um, and rights to their to their land and to their um, way of life. 
Um, but also the degradation of the environment and biodiversity, and so the the nexus between these three these three things. And of course, when you're working in this space, um, you might say these are the three sort of front lines of uh, climate change. These are uh, the issues that are or the the people um, that are going to be most affected by climate change. Um, so we need to think about how to address these communities and provide sustainable development opportunities while also considering preserving and conserving our environment and biodiversity. So working in that space for so many years really led me towards looking at climate change adaptation and mitigation strategies, which uh, brought me to uh, Project Drawdown. But I would say if you've you've profiled my bio, um, prior to getting into this field of people, um, uh, planet, and prosperity, I was actually an historian, an historian of institutional development and identity formation. So I was looking at the history of uh, political economy, looking at uh, art, culture, material culture, and how these uh, were utilized in different parts, uh, different time periods to create institutions and reinforce institutions. And it's my my belief that understanding uh, how these institutions form um, and how individuals participate in those institutions allows us to have a pathway towards changing uh, those institutions for the benefit of humanity and the planet. And so that's that's sort of my overall arc over the time period that led me to to Project Drawdown, which is a which is a wonderful synthesis of this. How do we change the system to make it more restorative, make it more regenerative, while addressing this fundamental problem that is affecting um, so many people uh, across the planet and will be affecting some of our most uh, those frontline communities and um, and uh, our environment and our biodiversity. Yes, yes. Um, now, Project Drawdown, the book's been out for well, well over two years, and, and I guess the thinking and the research, uh, you know, more than that. What impact would you say that Project Drawdown has had? I'm sure it's not so easy to uh, to chart it in, 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 in the different areas, you know, the governments, corporations, communities. Um, it's had a widespread impact. Uh, it's been very popular. The book's been a bestseller and so forth. What do you think are uh, a few of the, the, the signal or the most significant impacts that it's had? Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, it's quite hard to quantify, but the book has been remarkably successful. But I would also say, you know, as a communication tool that really got uh, got the concept and the message of Drawdown, both in terms of how we were framing uh, the language and how we think about and act on global warming, but also this deep, rigorous research in a way that is really accessible to people. And what we've seen is people taking up that book in a remarkable way across the planet. Um, but it's also not just the book, but it's also, you know, we've been going out to the world and, and giving uh, talks uh, um, and giving talks to different types of communities, different audiences. And yes, whether it's a, at the community level, whether it's policymakers, businesses, investors, etc., we've been going out to the world and spreading the, the message um, and the content of Drawdown to really try to empower people and enable people to think about how they can uh, take action in a really meaningful, meaningful way. And there have been a lot uh, across the across the the planet. There's been a lot of action going on, whether that's a community scale. We've had uh, community-led initiatives taking shape in Toronto, for example. Drawdown Toronto has formed. Drawdown Cincinnati has formed. Uh, we've had governments uh, like the the County of Marin in California uh, has uh, taken on Drawdown as a new uh, as a as a new uh, target into the future for their policy making. 
you know, Drawdown Netherlands has taken shape. The Drawdown Switzerland has taken shape. We have a Drawdown Europe research organization that just was launched uh, a couple months ago. We have a similar um, initiative taking shape in India. We have Drawdown Cameroon has taken shape. We have it all over the world. We have communities of, of um, uh, mean at the municipal scale. We have community action. We have researchers taking taking this on. We have policymakers becoming engaged. We're entering into partnerships with coalitions of philanthropists and investors who are seeking to enable these solutions and implement these solutions uh, that we're profiling and draw down in really meaningful ways um, and working with us to to figure out how to unlock that capital uh, to make it effective in implementation. Uh, we're working with corporations and businesses and there are countless examples of folks uh, who have taken on uh, drawdown, either in a direct partnership with us or just running with it, just taking the concept of it and building something into their own uh, approaches to to uh, making change or to the way that they do business. Um, this is happening all over all over the planet, and so we're incredibly honored, honestly, and and a bit. Um, it was a bit of a surprise that when the book was uh, uh, released in 2017, that we would have such an outpouring of interest and support. And so we're, we're kind of a bit um, honored a little bit and uh, and also a little bit shocked. Uh, so it's, it was you know, it's because we really thought it was important, you know, and the, the deep amount of research that went into uh, into the book, but also the other tools that we're creating, people are just taking it on. They're just... It's 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 it's, a, it's it's really remarkable, and there's something there was something about drawdown that is really unleashed to the world, and, and really has taken taken into people's hearts, hands, and, and heads. Absolutely, absolutely. Why do you think then drawdown has been such a success and so inspiring? Well, I think um, in no small measure, it's this is that we've we we set out to kind of reframe the way people think about and act on global warming. Um, so drawdown is that point in time when atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases begin to decline on a year-to-year basis. I mean, anybody who's listened to this podcast over the past uh, number of months knows that. That's the technical definition. But more than just a technical definition, drawdown, as I see it, is you know kind of that marker on the horizon pointing us towards a future that we actually want, a future where reversing global warming is possible. And we need to we need to set what that marker is. We need to set that goal that is going to actually inspire people to take action and to move towards that. Now, the pathways towards that goal, towards that marker on the horizon may change, they may weave, they may move, they may there may be different types of solutions that are relevant to different places and different contexts, but it's all leading towards that future we actually want. And so what we try to do at Drawdown is actually name that marker on the horizon and to show people some multiple pathways that when taken together can achieve that. And I think that's really fundamental. But in naming that marker, we also need to reframe how we get there. Because what we've done for uh, you know 25 years or more is focus on the problem. We focused on fear. We focused on conflict. And this is both in the scientific literature, we're focusing on the problem, but also um, focusing in the media where we focus on fear and conflict. And we want to shift that entire discourse to move away from this because that combination of 
fear and problem and conflict, this only leads to apathy. It leads to an indifference to the status quo. And we know those are the tools of oppression. Those are the tools to maintain the status quo. They're not tools for change, problem, fear, conflict. We need to change that to be a, a, a paradigm focused on solutions, understanding what those solutions are, possibilities. So what can those solutions actually achieve? What's possible? Is it possible to, to reach that marker that we all want? And then to focus on collaboration, working together, because together we can achieve this. By shifting the discourse from problem, fear, conflict that leads to apathy to solution, possibility, and collaboration, this leads to the uh, con – these are the real conditions to create opportunities, right? This is where we see opportunities form. And the opportunities uh, make this future that we want possible. And so I think just just in changing that discourse has been so inspiring to people. Now, this does not mean we want to ignore the problem. We don't want – we're in a climate emergency. We're in a climate crisis. We have to be realistic about that and understand what could be happening, the potential if we don't do anything. So we never want to uh, turn a blind eye to the reality of the problem. But by focusing on that, we don't actually uh, we don't actually empower and enable action, and so that shift is fundamentally important. And what I would also say is that sense of understanding solutions and possibility and collaboration only happens in my mind, in my belief, is that when you start to present real, workable technologies and practices that are, how would I say? I would say uh, tangible, uh, that are quote touchable, right? You can kind of you kind of imagine. Uh, by presenting this list of solutions, as we've done with Project Drawdown, that people can kind of imagine going out and actually touching that wind turbine or, you know, going out and seeing those solar panels or going out and ex uh, into a, a silvo pasture farm or going out and seeing a regenerative farming practice. You can imagine seeing that because it's real. You can imagine going to a uh, a school and seeing uh, a young girl finally having access to uh, quality education. You can imagine that. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can you can wrap your head around that. It's not just theories of change. It's not theories of uh, degrowth theories or uh, changing the way we think about GDP or economic models or pol policies. It's real graspable solutions that are win, 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 win. And what I mean by that is when you start to think about these solutions, and as we've tried to present them in Drawdown, and we're going to continue to be developing this um, with our research and communications, is that these are solutions that don't just benefit the, the climate. Okay, These are have cascading benefits to human and planetary well-being. Let's take regenerative agriculture, which you've heard about with Mumta uh, and Eric and, and others earlier in this series. Regenerative agriculture... Um, improves uh, soil health and productivity. It improves water retention. It increases yield. It benefits smallholder farmers. It benefits large farming operations. It brings carbon back to the land. It results in a win, 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 win set of outcomes that kind of result in this, what I think of as a uh-huh moment. This you get enough uh-huh, 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 uh-huh as you think through those cascading benefits that it just becomes common sense. Your neural pathways start to change when you can't think about why we would not want to have these solutions because they have so many wins. And I think that 
that those three kind of pieces that we've reframing the language to focus on solution possibility and collaboration to create opportunities to to present a list of workable solutions that are touchable people can really go out and imagine taking action with them and that there are so many benefits to them that they're just common sense and i think that is what's been made drawdown so successful and so inspiring to people yeah and 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 you talk about it there this idea also i mean underlying this is to some extent this idea that there's an opportunity here as well um and i guess what's interesting is the way you talk about it as well that the language you use you know talking more about regeneration and uh, ideas like that how important do you think that is? And can you talk a little bit about how you approach framing the, these questions in drawdown? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It is fundamental. I mean, language is the embodiment of meaning, right? And so we have to be cognizant. We have to really think about the language that we use and the meaning that we're trying to convey to make what we're trying to put out to the world as accessible as possible to multiple audiences. And the book is one form of that. That's one form of communication that is really designed to be accessible to the broadest range we can imagine. Um, whether you're a ninth grade uh, student or you're a retired school teacher, whether you're a policymaker, whether you're a farmer, whether you're a business leader a business, or whether you're working in a, as a community organizer, Whatever the context in which you're operating, you can access that uh, book and, and, our, and our website and our materials because they're, they're designed to be clear, precise, and using language that is, um, uh, we feel, accessible and inspiring to people. And we have to remember that humanity is brilliant. We have you know, these technologies and practices I mentioned earlier that exist that can solve the problem of global warming. But what we lack um, is the will to move farther and faster than we ever thought we really needed to. And I think that's partially to do with the language that's being used. And not just the language, but the way the, way the science and the way the concept of global warming and climate change has been presented to us. You know, in part, the science has been communicated. Um, it's distant. It's complicated. It's, it's incredibly complex. Um, in you know the intergovernmental panel on climate change, for example, or the many other academic and scientific endeavors, are incredibly foundational. They're absolutely essential. Descriptions and explanations of the problem, the effect, and understanding of what we need to do at the highest level. But these materials are often presented in ways that are uh, too distant for most people to act upon. They focus on the problem, the effect. They focus on climate change. Again, incredibly important. We need to understand this. But we also need to understand how to take action. And what that requires is a translation of the science into ways that are usable and meaningful to policymakers, to investors, to businesses, to communities, to educators, to households. And so we have to really think about how to translate that science in ways that gets rid of the jargon, that gets rid of the the density of materials, but does not lose the rigor. And that's what we're trying to do with Project Drawdown in no small measure is to create those translational tools um, to be clear and effective and to using um, language that is uh, eminently accessible, um, as well as creating decision support tools. So how do we take the science and create tools that allow decision makers to take it, make action? 
And as I mentioned earlier as well, the way that we're presented in the media, uh, global warming in the media today is, is focused on the doom and gloom of the climate disaster. We're inundated with horrifying headlines, terrifying images and content that really creates this overwhelming sense of apathy, as if there's nothing we can do to make this change. We're marketing the wrong thing. We're marketing the problem, the conflict, the fear, and that really distracts us from taking action. We need to market solutions, not just a disaster. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's how we've really thought about the language uh, uh, in the book and in all of our communication tools. Um, we want to do away with the, uh, the language around war, cutting, slashing, uh, tackling, battling climate change. It, 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 it doesn't work. Most people on the planet do not want to get into a fight. We have to realize that. Most people do not want to go to war. Um, but most people do want to see opportunities. Most people do want to see uh, opportunities that provide benefit, benefit to their lives, benefit to their to their pockets in many cases. And so we have to think about ways of presenting these solutions as uh, not as a battle to fight uh, fight the planet or fight nature, climate change, but actually a solution opportunity to fix the problem that humanity has brought to to uh, to the planet. Or, or, and and that's really a fundamental shift in, I think, um, how we frame drawdown as a way to elicit action. So quite an extensive range of solutions. Were there a few that you particularly like? Oh, yes. Well, thanks, Fergal. I, I, you know, I get this question asked a lot, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fair enough question. We did create a, a list of ranked solutions, and so um, uh, oftentimes people have their favorite ones that are really impactful or meaningful to them. However, you know, I don't know what I can say to that, to be honest. Um, am I more inspired by solutions like distributed solar and wind that provide access to electricity to, to households that don't have access to electricity currently, that are using kerosene for cooking and lighting, or plant-rich diets or, or reducing food waste? are solutions that result in enough food and sustenance to the world's population that can, can really address health outcomes. And uh, the 800 million people on the planet who are starving today, are those my favorite solutions? Are those my favorite solutions? Silvopasture, which is such an interesting solution, or regenerative agriculture, or I love tropical tree staple crops. These, these are regenerative practices that, as I said earlier, restore soil health and productivity, benefit farmers, brings carbon back to the land, Educating girls, family planning, these are solutions that are fundamentally important. They're about human rights, justice, gender equity. Are they my favorite solutions? They have so many cascading benefits to the planet. You know, and, and just simply by respecting and recognizing the, the dignity and the rights of indigenous peoples to their tenure rights and to the, to the to traditional lands, because um, they're the best they're the best managers of our ecosystems. These are all solutions that are so powerful, that are so meaningful. And I, I have to say, all 80 of these solutions are my favorite. And what that means to me is, is that this is a system of solutions that we're actually putting out there into the world. That's what inspires me, honestly. It's about system transformation that can occur when we're implementing these solutions together. Um, shifting the system, shifting the business as usual that is inherently exploitative and extractive to something new that is restorative and regenerative. That, that combination of system change, 
That is what inspires me. That is my favorite solution because all of these individual ones are so fascinating and have so many benefits. I can't pick just one. I have to pick the system change itself. That's what I think to me is the most inspiring and my favorite, uh, that my favorite part of what we're doing at Project Drawdown is, is, is really showing how we can have a new system that benefits all. I think one of the interesting things as well is the looking to the future and some of these coming attractions. On the one hand, we need to be clearly a bit careful about getting overwhelmed and seduced by some of the techno-utopia mood and so forth. But it's hard to deny that there that there are some uh, very impressive technological solutions in very specific domains and areas that are, are being generated. You know, one-fifth of the book covers some of these possibilities and uh they're, they're very stimulating and inspiring. Over the time the book's been published, I guess there's been new, new ideas and new technologies as well. Are, are there a few that you think now would be included? Oh, yeah. Thank, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so for sure, what we've done with, our, uh, with Drawdown is, is really try to focus on uh, 80 existing technologies and practices that when taken together can achieve Drawdown. But we also have to recognize that there are new solutions that are on the horizon, these coming attractions, as you point out, and they can be incredibly important. Now, before I get into that question, what I do want to really stress here, Fergal, is that whatever new technology that is, or practice that is on the horizon, whatever coming attraction that's coming down the line, we can't wait for those coming attractions to become viable. We just can't wait that for that time. We have about 10 years of our carbon budget uh, budget left and uh, we're in a state of crisis. We're in a state of emergency. We have to act now. We have existing technologies and practice that can get us there. We need to be doing everything we can to scale and to uh, to implement these solutions across the planet. And when those coming attractions come online, they're going to help us move faster for sure. But when they do come online, they're not going to be a silver bullet. They're not going to be even a subset or, or, or a silver buckshot, as some people like to say. Um, and they're not going to immediately penetrate markets in the time horizons that we have to actually make the changes that we need. So we really need to be focusing on existing technologies and practices to moving them forward. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be innovating those existing technologies and practices, those innovating those solutions. We need to make them more economically viable, more efficient. We need to uh, make them uh, improve their their physical efficiency so that we're using less materials and less inputs into their construction. We need to uh, we need to improve them for sure, but uh, we shouldn't be waiting for those coming attractions on the horizon. We need to be going right now with what we have today. But these coming there are some coming uh, attractions that you know could take another thirty years. Some could take ten years. Some could take five years. Some could be around the corner. And I think there are some uh, some coming attractions that are really quite interesting and show tremendous promise. You know, things like uh, marine permaculture and ocean farming are things that we can take off relatively quickly. We have models for this, particularly ocean farming, when we think about uh, seaweed farming, uh, macroalgal farming. This is already happening today. And so extending this out uh, and really focusing on expanding it could be something that, you know, uh, could be right around the corner. And then if we start thinking about, you know, farming of, uh, say, uh, Asparagopsis taxiformis, which is this algae that, um, as we profile, we call cows walking on the beach, which has a dramatic impact on the production of methane in livestock, uh, 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 could have profound impacts on livestock 
production, whether that's in the dairy or for the meat industry, in reducing methane. Um, and that's incredibly important. This is right around the corner. We have models of existing practices that can be can be used to accelerate the adoption of some of these coming attractions that are around the corner. So I do think things like marine permaculture, ocean farming, uh, asparagopsis, uh, the farming of asparagopsis, are things that can be done relatively uh, soon and are, are on the horizon. Smart technology, for example, can have huge impacts. And there are people who are every day working to accelerate the uh, the potential impact of smart technology, whether that's smart technology in your home with smart thermostats or building automation systems in the commercial sector, or we're thinking about smart grid technology so that we can have better better price signals and understanding how uh, we can have more efficient distribution of electricity. All of these types of technologies are being worked on um, on a daily basis and have the potential to to have impact uh, right around the corner, I think. I believe we're almost there. Now, there are some coming attractions that we do evaluate. Uh, marine permaculture, for example, is one, and ocean farming is one, are, are coming attractions that we profiled in the book that we are currently in the process of evaluating as it exists as a possible existing solution and we're able to do that now because the research team we've uh, uh we haven't stopped the research has not stopped we're not uh, we weren't uh, the book is just a kind of a very beginning uh communication tool and actually represents a small fraction of the research and and results and the the data that we've um we've uh, aggregated collected and, and and analyzed um what we've done in the meantime is besides updating all of our models we've actually created an oceans model a new component to our our model uh, infrastructure that allows us to evaluate marine based technologies and practices we ha- did not have that for the book and now we do so we will be evaluating uh, marine permaculture and ocean farming collecting as much data as possible and and you know w- what qualifies as an existing uh, solution is that there's enough data to validate it scientific a solution that's being scientifically valid and it's potential to reduce emissions or sequester carbon, that it is uh, currently um, financially feasible, that it um, has the potential to scale at a global level, and that uh, has more positive externalities than negative. So if we take that together, some of these solutions, and if the data shows that they are existing and that they, we can consider them as an existing solution, we'll let you know by next year when, uh, when the model results come out. Great. We'll come back to you on that. <laughs> Ask you more. Um, now, policy. Many of these solutions are uh, need policy or w- w- to you know need new policies, new ways of thinking about policies, and new kinds of policies. Uh, need policy makers, uh, politicians, and, and and others to 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 get involved. Now, to what extent have you been thinking about this as part of your ongoing work? And to what extent have you designed processes or are you thinking about ways of making these uh, solutions and, and your research available to policy? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Fergal, for the, the, the project, as you know, I env- we envisioned it from day one, was first order of business. We need to create a global systems model. Uh, that evaluates these solutions, these technologies and practices as a system of solutions I mentioned earlier at global scale. Um, and that, and doing so allows us to ask, ask the question, what if? What if we were to achieve uh, this level of adoption of all these different solutions as a system? What is possible? And that's absolutely fundamental as a stage one 
to inciting that inspiration to the world and to get people start to thinking about those opportunities. Um, but that's really phase one of our work, I would say, because uh, and it's ongoing, it's continuing. We're always in this process of, of, of improving and evaluating, creating new solution, new data, new models, new assessments. But global systems models, global uh, assessments only have very, very little, I would say, for very little feasibility uh, or application for on the ground action. It's really hard to translate a global perspective to uh, the particular place, whether that's at a city level or a community or even even policymakers at the national scale. They have different contexts. And so our phase two has always, our arc has always been first develop that question of what if, then look to um, a different question, how to. How do we actually get onto those trajectories? And to do so, that global model can act as a, as a framework for regional and local applications. So we're currently in the process of regionalizing our model so that we can uh, create tools that are actually usable and meaningful to those different contexts. Um, and this is where some of those partners that I mentioned earlier, we're, we're, we're catalyzing a, an association of research uh, and tool builders in the USA and in Europe, India, and so on, that are all part of a distributed network that are collecting and creating these tools together. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Because I believe fundamentally that for policymakers to have decision support tools that are meaningful to them, they have to do this at the regional or local level because there are different contexts that matter. And so in order for policy levers, uh, financial mechanisms, educational platforms, ways of, of uh, incentivizing and inducing behavior change, these are what I would call accelerators, right? Solutions are technology and practice that actually have the effect of reducing emissions or sequestering carbon. An accelerator is a way to get onto the those trajectories, the how-to. And I tr fundamentally believe that that has to happen in place. We have to enable a framework and create a framework that is usable, um, adaptable, but as ultimately it needs to come from the places themselves in order to uh, enact the change they need. And, 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 and that's where we're building the next work, our next phase of research. We hope by 2020 to be able to release the first platform that will allow this to, to happen. And what that means is we are seeing this as the tool or as a principal tool for policymakers to be able to access local contextual data and information on solutions that are relevant to their to their place so that they can make decisions at the scale that is uh, that they have agency in. Um, and so, yes, we are. This is a long winded way. I'm sorry to respond in such a long way, Fergal, but it's a it is it is always been present on our mind. How do we create a tool for policymakers? But these tools are also how do we create tools for investors? How do we create tools for businesses? How do we create tools for communities? All the different levels of agency that we've identified in Project Drawdown as decision makers and people who can take action, we're creating a tool that enables that to happen by connecting the global to the regional to the local. And we'll have information flows that go, go from uh, multi-direction, so up and down from global to local and vice versa. But it's ultimately owned and, and, and contributed to by this distributed uh, network um, of, of institutions and researchers from across the world. Well, the other side of the coin, I guess, is personal behavior and personal action and so forth. And there seems to be tremendous momentum now um, 
I know that in the book, Paul Hawken, I think it's, he quotes, I think it's Bill, Bill McKibben. He, he talks about this idea that the, at the heart of the movement is, you know, five or 10% of the people who are decisive, you know, in a world where apathy rules. And there's tremendous momentum, uh, it seems, you know, with Extinction Rebellion, the school strikes, Greta Thunberg, and so forth, the Green New Deal now becoming something that people are talking about. Do, do you think we're, we're, we're nearly there in terms of, you know, the, the, those dimensions, five, 10%? Is that something that you think is on the horizon? Oh, for sure. I think I think definitely at least five to ten percent of the population is becoming activated, and there may be centers uh, around the planet where this is happening, but it's it's increasingly growing. Um, and I have no way of quantifying that, uh, but it's just an impression. We see it everywhere. We see it across sectors and different levels of decision making, um, from from policymakers in in governments to individuals in their own household decision-making. And of course, the middle part, that that sort of the middle out, the we uh, of communities, municipalities, businesses, institutions, we're seeing that more and more taking on an understanding of the climate emergency that we're in and the solutions that we need to move forward with. And I think we're well on a, our way to, to awakening humanity to these solutions at hand. I mean, humanity is brilliant. We already know what to do. So it's not a matter of finding something new. It's a matter of just opening your eyes and seeing the common sense solutions that are at hand. Um, and, and as I said, when I talk about the we, I mean, of course, just to be clear, not just Project Drawdown. There are many organizations around the world that are doing brilliant work in this space. We're trying to engender a, a, a community, a network, so that we're all looking towards you know, that kind of common marker on that horizon that I mentioned earlier, whatever it is. What we find, what I find so inspiring, as I go around and, and, and you know give talks and, and meet with people and create these partnerships, is that whatever approach we're taking, we're all sort of seeing that marker of the future that we want, and so we're all kind of you know there might be as I said different pathways to get us there, but we're all headed toward a lot of us are headed towards that direction. I think that's incredibly, incredibly inspiring. Um, the thing that is this future that we want is I want to make that clear because it's a future for ourselves, people who are already working in this space we are like myself I'm, I'm i'm nearly 40 years old i'm going to feel the impacts of climate change in my lifetime so the the future that i want is a future that's going to affect myself and my generation but you know these the effects of climate are going to get worse and worse and worse and more impactful to to our human and planetary systems that are going to affect not just my life to a small degree, but our children's lives to a much greater degree. And the next generation after that, our children's children. So so the time to act is now. We have a moral responsibility to our children and our and our children's children, next generations, um, no matter what our economic or political viewpoints one might have. And I actually think we're at the cusp of really a tipping point of making that, of, of implementing these solutions and getting onto these trajectories that we need to be on. Because as you say, I think at least five to 10 of the population is already awakening. And I hope we have a snowball effect um, where we have far more people coming on board. What's next? What's next for Project Drawdown, Chad? Um, so Project Drawdown, as I said, you know, our first sort of what we might call Drawdown 1.0 was to to sort of look at that global uh, systems approach to do, uh, you know, uh, set up the framework to evaluate nearly any technology or practice that we know of, 
at global or regional scales, and then to communicate that in the most accessible way possible. And that that sort of culminated in the book Drawdown, which was published in 2017. You can think about it as Drawdown 1.0. Drawdown 2.0 um, is, is taking that, taking that foundational piece of that we started, and then sort of scaling that, we hope, exponentially. So our vision is to reach a billion people, to do so in a way that is meaningful and useful to people so that the concept of drawdown as that marker on the horizon as a new way of acting on global warming around solutions possibility and collaboration can be an organizing principle for all sectors whether you're a policymaker or an individual household decision maker or everything in between the we as i said earlier um how do we reach those people? Well, we're going to be engaged on an increasingly global communications campaign that includes a lot more uh, communication tools and toolkits being designed to spread the word and spread the message out there. Again, addressing that, how we talk about and think about global warming. We're also uh, creating a global research collaborative, as I mentioned earlier. These are associations of research and the institutions that are dedicated to creating a free open source platform of uh, data and knowledge uh, around these solutions and tools, tool building engine that can be used for decision makers at all scales to actually access and extract meaningful outputs for their decision making. Um, and we're also building a larger, increasing larger ecosystem of partners at different levels, whether that's uh, major businesses uh, and corporations. We're working with investors, partners with our investors and, and philanthropies. Again, these research institutions and then these communities uh, and building an ecosystem uh, of partners because we really fundamentally in Drawdown 2.0 want to break down those silos of information and action that prevent us from moving forward from a systems perspective because we're all working together. And, uh, and we see these three parallel pathways um, that are totally interconnected as communications campaign, our uh, tool building engine, if you will, and our uh, increasing uh, ecosystem of partners as the pathway forward for Drawdown 2.0 to really have to really reach those billion peoples and to be useful and meaningful uh, as an organizing principle. Um, what I would like to do, if I can plug a little bit something more in the short term that I would like everybody in this uh, listening to this podcast to, to know, we will be hosting, um, co-hosting a the first international drawdown conference called uh, Research to Action, the Science of Drawdown. This was uh, in collaboration and co-hosting uh, with our partners, Pennsylvania State University. And this will take place in September, uh, from September 16th through the 18th this year just before the UN Climate Summits in New York. Um, and this is going to be a gathering. It's going to be a gathering of the research researchers, research collaborative from across the world coming together for the first time to really chart out our pathway forward for this, for this collaborative. And I uh, encourage you all to check that out on our, web, on, a, on our website and register to join us. It's, a, it's an offering. It's an invitation to be part of uh, what we're building uh, together. So a great vision for the future and lots of work and lots of inspiring ideas, Chad. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast and sharing the, the great work that you're doing. Thank you, Fergal. It's been my pleasure to be here today. Um, and I look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. 
We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play. <laughs>